You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you'll bless us here as we talk about what is right and true. I ask for that gift and for your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in Malaysia, let me introduce myself briefly. My name is Eugene Pruitt. And I grew up in Alaska, and my parents had that moving bug where we moved a lot. Uh, partly that was because my dad was a smoker, and my mom loved to teach church school. And, uh, and those two, that's not a good combination. That, that. And so it resulted in lots of moving around for us. And that final move was to Alaska because, it wasn't final, but in this story it is, because my mom thought in Alaska they'd be so desperate for teachers, they surely wouldn't care about my dad smoking. That's what she thought. So she applied, but my dad decided to go ahead and apply for a job in, in computer IT work because that was his field. So he, he was, had been working in Flint just before that. He sent up his resume my mom didn't get a job, but my dad got a very good one. So we moved to Alaska, and uh, that is where God trained me and raised me and where I became a real Christian. I grew up in, as an Adventist. My family goes back here in Michigan a long ways to Alvin Marsh, seven generations ago, a bear trapper. Uh, you know, trap the bear, shoot the bear, skin the bear, sell the skin, leave the guts. That kind of, that's what he did for a living. And he became the head elder and the first head elder of the Edenville Seventh-day Adventist Church. He didn't eat the bear, so it's okay, right? <laughs> and uh, someday I might tell you a bit about him, but not today because I'm talking about me. When I was just about 17, I got an idea that I don't want to have regrets a million years from now. I don't want to look back at my short life on earth and and wish I had done something else. Like, you're, many of you are at the age where you could actually look back already and wonder what you should have been doing. And uh, I decided as a young man to try to do what I had wished I had done a million years from now. Welcome, you can come in. We're just, I'm just introducing myself, so you could even come five minutes from now and you wouldn't miss anything. So because of that, I did not really get what you would call a formal education. And if you only like listening to people that have advanced degrees, you still have a few seconds to walk out because I don't have even an associate's. Nothing like that. If you wonder, like, what are my qualities for speaking? That isn't one of them. What did happen to me is I found that academically, Reading and studying science and math and history was very easy, and selling books was very difficult. But at the end of the week, when I thought about where did I accomplish the most good, was it calculus and chemistry, or was it selling a few books? I concluded that the thing that was hardest for me happened to be the most useful thing I was doing during the week. That was at Oklahoma Academy, 1988 and 89, where that happened. So I decided to continue in that canvassing business. 
And it was that canvassing business that kept me busy until GYC started. And this is the longest introduction I've ever given for myself. It's mostly to let people come. And uh, in 2002, we had the first GYC meeting. Did any of you attend that in California? Was there anyone here? Not one. So interesting. Maybe it's because you're all old. <laughs> and uh, that might be it. Because that Y st stands for youth, you know, in, in the GYC thing. It's youth. And it was speaking there at the first GYC that kind of launched me as a, one of those traveling speakers. And it's something that has bothered me since then, so that's been 19 years, I began to wonder why is it that so many of the traveling speakers are Americans? You know, we're only like 5% of the world's population. Why, why is it that the Americans are the ones that are being flown around to teach and preach and I'll tell you what I concluded, just for your own edification. I think it's because we have the writings of Ellen White in our native language. I think it's because in this country, many people have read them and studied them, and that that has produced a class of quality people of power that would not exist if people were not reading them. And uh, in many countries, you don't have many of the writings, and even... I was in Bangladesh two weeks ago. In Bangladesh, I met a number of young, zealous Adventists who don't have any burden to ever read anything by Ellen White. They don't have anything by her, and it doesn't bother them. And I was just thinking, if only they had had the resources that we've had in this country, maybe we'd have powerful Bangladeshi people that could be traveling around. Goodbye. I probably shouldn't have said that because this is on a recording. So anyway, canvassing and educational work, those are the things I've been doing forever. And six years ago, I moved to Malaysia. That's where my wife and I live even now. And Malaysia, West Malaysia where we are, about one in 5,000 people are Seventh-day Adventists. I think here in Michigan, it's probably about one in 150. Uh, I think in uh, the Philippines, maybe about one in 90. Maybe in Jamaica, about 1 in 15. Maybe in Belize, about 1 in 8. So, so I moved to Malaysia because of this. I thought I should be in a place where the people I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis don't have many chances to know the truth. So one day there in Malaysia, I was walking along when I saw a troop of monkeys that were jumping through the forest. They're jumping through the canopy. You know, when monkeys jump in the canopy, they tend to break a lot of branches. Any place where there's a lot of monkeys in the jungle, there's a lot of branches on the ground. And what happens is, when a monkey jumps from here to here, he doesn't jump from here to here. He jumps from here to here. Poor people listening. Like from a high point to a low point. And so he has some vertical velocity, and he ends up, the branches break. The reason that doesn't hurt monkeys is they never aim for the lowest branch. <laughs> so when the branch breaks, they just put out their hands and they catch the next branch on the way down. If they were in South America, they might put out their hands, feet, and tail. But in Malaysia, the monkeys don't have useful tails. They don't have the kind of tails where they can hold on to things. That's, that's uh, more of a South American thing than an Asian thing. Anyway, so, um, so here was one of these monkeys. And as he jumped over the road I was on, 
the branch he landed on broke, and he put out his hands to catch the next one, but someone had cut the branches along the road, you know, to make room for a crane or something. So there was nothing, and he fell all the way to the ground. I thought I was going to see a monkey die. But the monkey, not only did he not die, but he didn't even stop to brush himself off. He didn't even shake and just sit there. He landed and ran to a tree and climbed up very quickly. You know why? We have dogs on our mountain. And dogs love to eat monkeys, but dogs can't climb trees. So the dogs are just waiting for a monkey on the ground. And so the monkey can't afford to stay there any extra second. He has to, you know, get up there quickly. And I thought about that monkey a lot. Twice, Solomon says, that the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked fall into mischief. Uh, what does he say? Uh, Solomon says that the difference between a righteous man and a wicked man, it's not that one falls and one doesn't. That's not the difference. The difference between a good man and an evil man is that when the good man falls, he gets up. That is, when he repents, when he sins, he repents. I've heard of churches where there are people who haven't talked together for like five years sitting on opposite sides of the church. I don't expect either of them to go to heaven without repentance. Like, how long should it be between the time when you make a mistake and the time when you make it right? I think you should remember the monkey. When you do wrong, you're vulnerable. It's easy for the devil to discourage you when you make a mistake. It's easy for the devil to lead you to a second mistake when you've made a first mistake. The devil waits to see you on the ground, and then he runs. He's after you. You and I can't afford to wait any time between when we do wrong and when we make it right. Right? This is not related to religious liberty. It's just to give you a chance to come, and I think you've come. And so I'll tell you one story related to religious liberty, and then we'll launch into our Bible study. There in Malaysia, maybe seven years ago, there was a young lady named Priscilla. Um, I use real names when I'm talking to you, in case you're wondering, because if I use a fake name, how am I ever going to remember what name I used? <laughs> so Priscilla is a rubber tapper. That means that she takes a sharp knife and she scores a rubber tree and then it bleeds latex. And you collect the latex and sell it. It's really hard work and it doesn't pay well. Well, if you're in Indonesia or Cambodia, it pays pretty well, but Malaysia isn't as poor as some of, the, some of the countries in Asia. So in Malaysia, you need to earn about the equivalent of 500 US dollars a month to be doing okay. And uh, where in Cambodia, if you earn 100 US dollars, you'd be doing just fine. And it's hard to earn $500 a month tapping rubber trees. It doesn't pay very well at all. But that's what Priscilla was doing. And at nighttime, she studied hard. And in high school, she did so well that she won a full scholarship to study medicine. I'm looking to see if any of you are doctors just by looking at your faces. And this one right here, a full scholarship to study medicine. Uh, uh, you're a dentist. There's was a guy behind you that kind of pointed to you. And, uh, so, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> Priscilla wasn't the only one happy about this. It was her whole family. Because here in America, if you get good money, you know, it's just you, your wife, and children. But in Asia, if you get good money, it's the whole community that benefits from this. Everyone expects some sort of support from this situation. So her family was so happy. In Malaysia, a doctor in private practice can even earn sixty or $70,000 a year. You know, like 10 to 12 times what a rubber tapper earns, which is really good for the whole family. So Priscilla went off to school. Oh, she did good her first year of studying. And uh, that's when she attended AYC. That's something kind of like the homegrown GYC, AOY type meetings we have in this country. Uh, similar to that, it's just a Malaysian version. She attended it and it changed her life. She began to have devotions. She began to really think about why she was an Adventist. She began to read Ellen White's writings. Oh, what a change. And a few months later, she came to her end of the year exams. Scholarships in Malaysia are different than American scholarships. Like even here, you might have to keep your grades up to keep your scholarship, right? Isn't that true with many scholarships? You gotta keep them up. But in Malaysia, you gotta keep them up. But if you lose your scholarship, you lose it retroactively. You're gonna be billed for the schooling you've already done. It's a very high pressure on the students. Priscilla got up to the point to take her final exam, and it was on Sabbath. In America, we have religious liberty, you know, and you can like call around and talk to your senator, and, and if he's Republican, it might work out for you. And uh, maybe, I don't know, I live in Tennessee, so I don't know anything about other, other senators. But in Malaysia, there's no such thing as religious liberty. And no one was going to change the date of that exam. And uh, when she told her family, the family realized Priscilla could lose the dream of being a doctor. The community realized she could lose. There's a lot riding on this exam. And they didn't say to her, be strong, welcome back. They didn't say to her, be strong. They said, take the exam and repent. <laughs> just take it, be done with it, and, you know, because th that's too much. Like, you think about for you, for yourself, if you're conscientious, if by doing the right thing you're going to lose $50 for an hour, you can afford to lose $50, you'll take the loss and do the right thing. But if it's going to be $2 million, for one hour of compromise, I think even some of you would begin to feel something kind of internally. Like maybe an hour isn't so long. Maybe an hour isn't such a big deal. Maybe an hour, you know, like that's just too much. I'll just tell you the good news. Priscilla was faithful to King Jesus. She didn't take the exam. She did lose her scholarship. She did have to drop out of school. She was billed for that first year and had no way to pay it. It isn't always true that when you do the right thing, things work out. 
It isn't always true that when you go the right direction, everything works out nice and rosy. Like, we don't do our children a good service if we tell them that following Jesus is easy. It isn't so, and it's not going to be so. It's going to be harder. But Priscilla did come to study at the school that I'd started there in Malaysia. So this is how I got to know her. She became my student. And you know, she did very well at school. Just as she did well in secular studies for medicine, she did very well in Bible studies for evangelism. It takes the same kind of brain power. And she did exceedingly well. And now she is the director of our secondary and primary school in Sabah. And since the time that she started there, about 25 students have come there to that. We intended to train Adventist youth to make them mission-minded, but 25 of our 30 students there are non-Adventist. 20 of them are Muslims, and they're all becoming Adventist missionaries. They're all becoming Adventist missionaries. With the Muslims, initially, some of the parents got quite angry that their children were praying in the name of Jesus. It bothered them. But we've had, when the pandemic started, those Muslim parents in our area, they are illegal aliens in Malaysia. They don't have permission to work. So they have to work for very low wages, long hours. When the pandemic started, they lost their jobs. And of course, as immigrants with no status, they have no welfare. And suddenly they have no way to pay for their children's food or their own food. And I asked Priscilla, actually she asked me and I, I okayed it, uh, if they could start feeding those families. And uh, people here in America supported us and we were able to do it. And two of those parents now have become Christians. And one wife who became a Christian, the mother of some of our students, her husband still opposed it, but he became so ill he couldn't even function. Another husband that opposed his wife who was becoming part of us, he went after another woman and left his wife. So we really haven't had any, but we haven't been highly persecuted over this. I'm not sure it's going to stay that way. It could be that we could, that Priscilla herself could die. It could be that we could lose some serious uh, resources or have real problems there at that school. And if it happens tomorrow that I get a note that there's been a little massacre there and many of them are dead, I'm sure there'd be people, maybe even in this audience, who would say to me, it was all a mistake. You shouldn't have been doing it. And I would just say to them, have you read the book of Acts? God hasn't offered us safety. He's offered us a reward when we die faithful. What he said to us is be faithful unto death and then you receive the crown of life. Uh, so I, I am not of the opinion that my students have to guard their life as the most precious thing. What they need to guard is the interest of people's souls. Right now there's, there are many missionaries in the world that when things become very dangerous and difficult, they pull out. They come back for safety. I don't like that idea. It doesn't look to me like the right thing to pull out when the people you're trying to reach are having a hard time. 
and are facing death and destruction, that doesn't look right. You're saying, why are you here? I can't get a visa in Malaysia. So every 90 days I have to leave. And one of those 90-day trips, I was in South Africa for 10 days speaking. And while I was there, it was March last year, the world went crazy. And Malaysia locked its doors against people on visitor visas, which is what I'm on there whenever I'm there. So it locked its doors to me. And then South Africa locked its doors and I couldn't get out. So we spent March, April, May, and June in South Africa last year. Thank God, because we're some of what you'd call poor people. Thank God that it worked out and someone took care of us the entire time in that place. Yes, amen. So my seminars today and tomorrow on religious liberty are going to be going over two, if you will, two aspects that are both relevant, one more today in America and one more relevant later in America. One of those aspects is the liberty that the government should give us. You know, that the government should not impede what we're doing. Uh, Someone asked me yesterday if I really thought that it was government overreach to close churches during the pandemic. You understand that question? That's a religious liberty question, that one right there. And so that's the first issue. Should the government, what should we do about government overreach, about persecution, if you will? What is our part as Adventists? Do we just coast and hope for the best? That's what many Adventists decided to do in the 1880s, and they were rebuked for that significantly, for just kind of coasting and hoping for the best. But there's another aspect that seems to have come to the fore first in the election and now in the pandemic, and that is the kind of liberty we give to each other to think and to practice. It looks like right now there's lots of anger and hatred, bitterness growing at the very time when the Bible says that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold. Do you know the next words? He that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. Those verses aren't separate, they're together. That is, you live in an age when Satan is trying to reduce affection and God is trying to build up affection. Satan is trying to reduce love. Satan is trying, what did I say there? Did I say Satan's trying to reduce love? That's what I meant to say. And God is working to build up love. And it's just a very bad time for us to show ourselves angry at each other. It's a poor time for the kind of bitterness that I've seen so much in this last year. If your church has been split over the issue of masks, your church is not a converted church. If, if we are going to be so easily overcome in a time when our love should be maintained, there's something really wrong internally with us. So that's the second aspect. What is the liberty we give to each other? The liberty to think for ourselves. What about the liberty to children 
And this becomes a real hard question. A lot of you are parents, but I think a lot of you have grandchildren now, but this is America. You're raising your grandchildren now. So the, the question is, when your 14-year-old doesn't want to go to church anymore, do you make him? That's a religious liberty issue. And we want to understand it because handling these things right leads to power in our work and handling them wrong leads to disasters in our work. Maybe one more story before the Bible says, you seem to listen to stories so well. <laughs> I was teaching at Washita Hills College, you know that little school directly south of here, I think. Uh, and I remember in the cafeteria, Three people walked in. It looked like a mother, a father, and a teenage boy. And the, I got up to go greet them because, you know, they looked confused, like they didn't know what they were doing. And it was, time, it was the beginning of the school year when people show up, new students. And the father and introduced his family to me. The boy's name was Karan, Karan Chansey. He lives in France now. And the father very quickly said to me, my boy here has a problem with music uh, you need to take his iPad from him. Uh, by the way, Quran was coming to come to the college, not the academy. That's the college-level program. He was 18. And I felt so bad for Quran because a man that age, what he really craves is approval from his dad. And his dad just shamed him in front of a stranger. And that's about the worst thing like, I just really felt bad for the boy. And it probably made me not as kind to the fathers I should have been. And I said to the dad, not with, not with enough gentleness, I said, sir, we don't have a rule against college students having iPads. If you want to take it, that's between you and your son. We are not going to take it from him. And the dad became angry at me, quite predictably. And he and his wife left in a huff. And they left Quran. The next day, I took that young man, Quran, on a long walk into the mountains behind the school. And I shared with him that it was apparent to me that his parents had brought him to this school to fix him. Because he had problems with music and with video games and some with substance usage, and he just frankly wasn't religious. And his parents were of that super religious type, you know, super strong type. And so what I said to Quran is, the students that are here in the college, their parents didn't send them. They chose to come here themselves. They came here because they wanted what we have here, spiritual opportunities to grow. I said, Quran, the rules here are just too difficult for someone who's forced to be here. We have like a bedtime, like a curfew, and we don't allow certain types of music to be played out loud in the dorm, and we don't allow movies to be played in the dorm or on campus. We don't allow smoking or drinking or carousing. Or, we have all kinds of rules here that will just be to you a constant source of ir irritation if you're forced to be here. But if you chose to be here knowing those rules because you wanted the benefit the school has, I think if you chose it for yourself, those things would all be small things. They wouldn't be so hard for you to deal with. You could just, 
you know, because you chose them. When you choose something, you can take it. When you, when you choose to let someone put an IV in you, it's no problem. If someone just wants to stab you with a needle, that's very, very, you know, it's, you know, you understand, right? It's different when you choose it for yourself. So I said, Quran, I'd like you to stay here for one week and look around, open your eyes, and just see what you see. If at the end, if, if at the end of the week you decide that you want to stay, then stay because you want to stay. If at the end of the week you want to leave, I'll help you go somewhere and your parents can't stop it. We'll find a place for you to go. Quran stayed for the week and he chose it for himself. And today he's a missionary in France. That's religious liberty. That is, the Father and I have different ideas about how values become part of people's character. One of them works and one of them doesn't work. If you have the right idea of limits and liberty, then you can have more success in reaching individuals with your own values. If you don't understand limits and liberty, you end up being very oppressive and people can even feel oppressed even to know you. I won't ask you if anyone feels oppressed to know you. But if you can identify with Quran's parents, then I hope you'll think about the story. They left the church, by the way, the parents. They left the church. And it's not too surprising to me. I think that we live in an age when love has a lot to do with what you believe about truth. Because it works like this, God is working to build up the love and when we have it, it's an honor to him for us to believe the truth. But when the love goes away, our life is a dishonor to him. And then what he does is he works, he opens the door for Satan to bring to us deceptions. In the Bible, it's represented very strangely in Jeremiah 51. God is represented there as having, as Babylon being a golden cup full of wine in the Lord's hand. What is it? It's Babylon. It's a golden cup of wine. Who has it? It's the Lord. It's the same way in 2 Thessalonians 2, where it says, For this reason he sends them strong delusion, that they might believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who had not pleasure. Now I forgot what it said, but somewhere there it says, because they did not love the truth. That's what it says there. Let's look at it, because I flubbed it up quoting it, and you ought to see it at least... 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This chapter, by the way, is the one place in the Bible that speaks about Satan impersonating Christ. You know that idea that we got from, from Ellen White? This is where it is in Scripture. It's right here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going slow, but I'm almost there. Starting in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Those miracles mentioned in this chapter are mentioned repeatedly in the Bible as a sign of the last day events. That is, miracles are what Satan is going to use to push people to intolerance in the future. 
Miracles are going to lead them to give honor to the beast. Revelation 13 says he brings down fire. That's the miracle. The whole world wonders. That's the result. And then the whole world is oppressed with the religious laws. That's the persecution. If you follow the logic of what I just said, the miracles are the catalyst that produces the religious intoleration later. So anyway, here you see the miracles. Verse 10, And withal unrighteousness of deception among those who perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, well, I had those thoughts, but it just was not in the right order. So there it is. God sends them strong delusion, but if you read the passage carefully, we just read it, who's really deceiving them? And how's he doing it? Miracles. But God is permitting that. Because it's no honor to him to have unloving people in the church. No honor to him to have hard hearts here. So those miracles are coming. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to look, you know, the most famous verse is verse 18, right? I'm just helping you remember that so you'll know how to find the less famous verse. We're looking at verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, what does it say? Liberty. Liberty. Let me talk to you a bit about liberty, about the spirit of the Lord and liberty. Maybe I'll even have you talk to me, but if you do talk, I'll repeat what you say just because I'm being recorded. In China and in Malaysia, frequently, Adventists end up losing conscientiousness because they are required to work on Sabbath. In China, it's not always possible that you can get a job that would have Sabbath off. And in Malaysia, if you're a refugee, and Malaysia has hundreds of thousands of refugees, most of them from Myanmar. If you're in Malaysia as a refugee, and most of the Adventists in West Malaysia are refugees, then your jobs are illegal jobs and your employers are not at all likely to give you Sabbath off. So what do you say to a man who has five children, and his children are hungry, and the only job he can get is to work on Sabbath? What if he says to you, I don't have any option, I have to do it. I'm forced to do it. What I hope you'll see in the verse, verse 17, is that no one can ever force you to do wrong. That pressure is not force. Satan has permission to pressure you. He does not have permission to force you. He can threaten you with a lion's den, and he can even throw you in. He can threaten you with with a fiery furnace, and he can even throw you in, but he cannot force you. 
If you understand that liberty is an internal quality of being a Christian, then you will never use force as an excuse. In our church plant in Arkansas, before I moved to Malaysia, I was planting a church in a dark city there in Arkansas. And uh, one of the men who began attending our church, his attendance was spotty because he sometimes worked on Sabbath when the mill required it. The mill would require him to come work. And uh, his English was poor and our Spanish was poor. And so for us to communicate to him this idea of be, be faithful unto death, after we would meet with him, we always had this feeling like we didn't quite get it across. I don't know if you can understand that they're trying to, a, a serious idea and the language is preventing the deepest part of communication. This man, uh, we took too long. It was almost two years that we kept talking to him and trying to change things before we finally had a meeting to disfellowship him. And we met together and we disfellowshipped him for breaking the Sabbath. And immediately after we disfellowshipped him, he began attending. It's not really strange. It's more normal. It's more normal that people need, they need us to have a love for them that, that, that is not sentimental and empty, right? It, they don't need the sentimental emptiness. They need real care and concern. And conscientiousness, if you would ask Flavio, because that's his name, if you'd ask Flavio, why are you working on Sabbath? I have to. They're not giving me Sabbath off. But what the Bible says to him and to you is, quit your job. Your children... The Bible not only says that he's never seen the wicked, I mean, the righteous forsaken. It says something more than that. Nor the children what? Oh, yeah, begging bread, right? He's never seen the children begging bread. That is, faithfulness is not going to make you into a derelict father. Your children might be poor. They might be very poor. In Malaysia, one of my first students is a boy named... Joseph, Joseph Amos. Joseph was born to a prostitute in Thailand, um, and she uh, found that babies have a high sale value, and she sold him the day he was born. It was a prearranged sale, like, like it was known ahead of time that she was going to do that. And so it was some good extra income for her. And uh, he was purchased by a a Chinese-Malaysian couple that didn't have any, any of their own children. So they bought this Thai boy, and they raised him. You, technically, it wasn't very much like an adoption. It was a purchase. But anyway, so he grew up, and Joseph grew up in a home that was really wealthy. The father was in the offshore legal gambling business, and that's lucrative. And so... Uh, Joseph had his own motorbike when his friends didn't have one yet. He had his own car when, when his friends would never get one in their entire life. And he had his own apartment when his friends were living eight people in a one-bedroom house. Joseph always had money. And consequently, he had friends. You know how that works, right? It, the money was the reason because he's Thai and he doesn't know Thai. 
and he knows Chinese, and Chinese don't like Thai. So the combination of his late race and language would make him an outcast, but it didn't because he has... Yeah, so that, that, that's, that's what did it for him. But his dad was always gone. What do you think, just from what you know of human nature, which would a little boy want more? Plenty of money and plenty of toys, but dad not around, or live with a dirt floor in a bamboo shack and get rained on sometimes and have dad around all the time? What do you think? Which would a boy like better? He'd like the dirt floor even if he had the money, right? Like what Joseph really needed was dad, but what he really had was money. And what happened to Joseph is quite related to that. He ended up experimenting with homosexuality and, and identified as gay and spent his time in gay bars. Uh, as a Buddhist, there wasn't really any... There, Buddhism doesn't necessarily approve of homosexuality, but it, it's very... Yeah, there's no stigma to it. So his parents didn't mind. And by the time he was 19, he was diagnosed HIV positive, which should have stopped his sexual experiences, but it, he told me plainly it did not. And, uh, but it did make him kind of desperate and fearful. And while he was desperate and fearful, Christians invited him to church. He went to church and he accepted Jesus. He'd never even heard of Christianity before. And he, so he was going to church every Sunday and he met an Adventist friend. The Adventist friend invited him to church too and he could go to both because there's no competition, you know, there are different days. And, and he loved the Adventist faith because he was learning things and so he became a Seventh-day Adventist. And he came to be one of my students there in Malaysia, Joseph did. And he failed all his classes because his English is terrible. And my Chinese is even worse than his English. <laughs> and we just could not communicate. But if you would meet a stranger in church, in our church plant in Malaysia, there's a good chance Joseph invited them. I remember going into the health center there and Joseph coming over and bringing over two guests and telling me in his broken English that they want Bible studies. And he wanted me to give them Bible studies. And I only had to look at their face to realize they didn't want Bible studies. They just liked Joseph and didn't know how to tell him no. What I told people is that if Joseph dies of AIDS in his 20s, he will have won more people to Jesus than some people who live to their 70s, 80s, or 90s, you know, practicing the health message. Because he's putting his whole heart in. So what have I said to you this morning? I've used up almost a whole period and I've only shown you two verses. What I'm saying to you is that there is a liberty that God gives us that cannot be taken away either by the government or by our parents or by our acquaintances or by our church. No one can make me into a slave. No one can take away my liberty. Even if you put me in jail, I have liberty. Even if you disfellowship me from my faithfulness, I have liberty. You cannot deprive me of liberty because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... That's what it says. The next verse is the famous one, 
but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image, even from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is the idea? The idea is that the Spirit gives us a freedom to make our way to heaven. The Spirit gives us a freedom to be prepared for heaven in character. The Spirit fills us and gives us freedom to become loving persons in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We can shine as lights in the world, even in a dungeon. The Spirit can give us liberty. And as we talk about religious liberty this afternoon and tomorrow, I, I'm really hoping by this lecture to settle the idea that you're not a beggar for liberty. You're not a beggar in the sense that you must have liberty. We're requesting people to give us liberty for their own benefit. We ask the state to give us liberty for the state's benefit. It's because the state needs to give us liberty that we ask the state to do it. Uh, how to say this another way? Martin Luther was threatened with death. He said to threaten a Christian with death is like threatening a man by bringing him his horse and putting a saddle on it. He said Christians are masters of death. We, Jesus has conquered death. We have liberty. So when our own A.T. Jones was before Congress, you know, when, the, when Blair was making a Sunday law in the 1880s, I think you remember that that happened 120-some years ago. Nope, 110 years ago. Anyway, when, when that was going on, and A.T. Jones was there making his presentations, a compromise was offered to the Jews, the Seventh-day Baptists, and the Seventh-day Adventists. The compromise said that we'll make an exemption for these three groups and they can keep Saturday in place of Sunday with the Sunday law. And you know the Seventh-day Baptist? He was good with that. That sounds like that's fair enough. So we'll have a, law, a Sunday law. They'll say most people keep Sunday, but Seventh-day Baptists, Seventh-day Adventist Jews, they keep Saturday. The Jews, they were okay with that. You know, fine, as long as, as, long as we're accepted. A.T. Jones objected strongly. He said that is not what we're looking for at all. He said even if the whole law was a Saturday law, we would oppose it with the same energy as we do as a Sunday law. He said we're opposing it on the principle that when you get between God and the people, you make yourself an idol. When you tell me how to worship God, you're putting myself where no man should be. We oppose this on the principle that the government should not be involved in religion. So someone, at least three of you here, are probably those perfectionist types who actually read that the title of this lecture was something about Islam. And like you're wondering, so what's happening? So let me get to that before it's too late. Islamic uh, promoters are claiming that Muhammad invented religious liberty. I, I found a whole site about it, where, and they're promoting that, you know. You might not know this, but in Islam, Muhammad gets the kind of attention and adoration that Jesus should get but doesn't get in Christianity. That is, in Islam, Muhammad is the perfect man. He's the perfect statesman. 
He's the perfect husband. He's the perfect father. He's the perfect citizen. In Islam, his life is the ideal life. And we copy his life. We follow his life. We crave stories about his life. We teach our children stories about his life that everyone wants to know about him. He's, is the, did any of you know that about him, that he's the ideal? He's held up that way? This is why there's such anger in Islam when people draw cartoons about him or make fun of him. So what is it that Muhammad did where they can say he invented religious liberty? I'll tell you, it's what I call religious toleration. What's the difference between toleration and liberty? Uh, toleration is a legal position that says, legally, we will put up with you. Liberty says that you have the right to do what you do. Do you see any difference in the principle of those two? In toleration, there can be an end to toleration. There are conditions to toleration. If you don't behave properly, that will be the end of toleration. But in liberty, there's a right, and it's inalienable, according to the founders of our great nation. Is there a, is there a room there? <laughs> anyway. Toleration is exactly what was offered to A.T. Jones in the example I just gave you. It was toleration saying that you can have Saturday, we can have Sunday. In 1526, it was toleration that was offered to the princes in Germany. Charles V had lost a series of disastrous skirmishes. He was being weakened and threatened from a distance. He didn't have time to fool with the German princes any longer. And he thought he was really coming a long ways in the negotiation table. He made his declaration in 1526 and said, you can have Protestantism. It wasn't called that. He said, you can have Lutheranism, if you will, in your places. Here are the limits. You can practice and use the Bible in your own language, in your own house and church. You can choose your own pastors. You can go to your own churches. You don't need to come to ours. You don't need to support the Mass. You can have it all. But you cannot make any more converts. You cannot expand into settled Catholic areas. You cannot preach to Catholic people. And this will be our truce. You know what the princess said? What they said is where we get the word Protestant from. They came together and made that famous protest. And they said, we would rather die than accept this toleration. They said, what? To say the gospel has made its last conquest, that Jesus has saved his last soul? No, they'd rather lose their, their land, lose their life, lose everything than accept that. Charles couldn't believe it. How could they? Because what they were saying is religious liberty. What he was saying is religious toleration. Go back just a 
two chapters, no, four chapters before that in that same good book, The Great Controversy is about religious liberty. Start to end, that book is about religious liberty. Go back four chapters and you'll have the story of John Huss, Huss and Jerome. I won't tell you the whole story. We'll just skip over the, the shameful uh, position of Jerome and then how he came back to God at the last. We'll skip over all that. We'll skip over the faithfulness of Huss. Now he's been burned at the stake. Now we're coming in the same chapter. What happens next are the great wars between the European powers and little Bohemia. Do you remember that little Bohemia? And they brought those great armies against them and that great, are there any Czechs here that can say the name properly? Zishka, Prokopius. Anyway, if there's no Czechs here, then I won't get in trouble. Uh, that great general, he ended up fighting to defend his little nation and God gave him a miraculous victory over the much larger forces. One of those generals was blind and still had a tremendous victory. And after one of those great victories, after the European powers were so slaughtered and, and robbed of their wealth because they left it on the battlefield, the European powers came and said to the Bohemians, let's make a treaty. And what they offered them was the same thing that Charles V offered a hundred years later. But there weren't any princes there. They said, you can have married pastors. You can have the Bible in your Bohemian language. We'll allow it inside Bohemia. You must understand that the ultimate right to interpret the Bible will be the priests. The Catholic priests will have the ultimate right to interpret the Bible. And after decades of fighting, the fight-weary people said, it's good enough. What I'm telling you is that it's not good enough. And it didn't work out for Bohemia. Because when the devil gives you toleration, it's only to wear you down. And what he did is he ended up leading to bickering in between them. Bickering and infighting, and actually Procopius was assassinated. You know, their general that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago? Not by the Europeans. It was by the infighting. In Great Controversy, pages 42 and 43, there are, I have my students in Malaysia write an essay on those two pages because those two pages describe how the Christian church fell into the Catholic church, you know, the apostasy, how it happened. And what it says there is that it happened partly by a desire for evangelism. Great Controversy, page 42 and 43, if you're note-taking. It's those two. Page 45 is the one that says, let there be difference and even war, you know, instead of accepting a, a treacherous peace. But this is just before that, 42 and 43. Because of evangelism, what happened is the pagans said, we're coming a long ways toward you. Now you should come some distance toward us. And the church fell for that. But the faithful people wouldn't go for it. And it led to a division among the faithful. That division among the faithful, that's what Satan is aiming for. And if you will read that book, Great Controversy, and open your eyes, 
you'll see that Satan is about the same business today that he's been about since a long time ago. He's working right now inside the Adventist church to sow division. He's working to lead, to use evangelism as an excuse for compromise. He's doing everything in those two pages, what it really amounts to. He's working, what it says there is that there have always been two classes inside Christianity. Those that, that accept the doctrines but avoid the plain practical teachings. And those that try to imitate the self-denying life of Jesus. You always have these classes inside the Christian church. You have them probably in your congregation. What are those two classes? One class, they're the ones who are trying to become modified by the book. They're seeking to be just like this. They want to have the life of Jesus in their own life. They're trying to practice. That's one class. What's the other class? These are the ones that accept everything theoretical, but they don't want to change their practice. Let me just scan your ears for a minute before I say the next thing. Okay, I'll I'll say it. I was looking for earrings. I was looking for earrings. It's interesting that in Advent, when you're giving a prophecy series to a group of people, that what you say about the second coming or about uh, the state of the dead, however interesting those are, those aren't the things you really fight over. It's jewelry, tobacco, and tithe. That's, that's, it's the plain practical teachings, the ones that modify the way you live. That's always been the thing that one class doesn't like the plain practical teachings. So I'll summarize everything and close. What I've told you is that Priscilla did the right thing when she took the test. She had a liberty that was inside of her that couldn't be taken away from her. That Daniel did the right thing when he went to the lion's den. He had a liberty inside of him that couldn't be taken away from him. You can have inside of you a liberty that can't be taken away from you. But the devil will try. He'll try to compromise, to come your way and ask you to come his way. He'll try to give you a toleration and ask you to accept it. Christianity in the Islamic countries of the world, you know, there are Christians in, in Iran. There are Christians in Iraq. There are Christians in Egypt. Christianity in the parts of the world that are Islamic has for a millennia agreed to not do evangelism among the Muslims. They've accepted toleration. They've accepted it so long that it feels to them like liberty, but it never has been liberty. Are we begging for, are, are we begging for liberty? No, we ask the government to give us liberty because the government's in trouble if they don't. We ask our parents to give us liberty because our parents are in trouble if they don't. We ask our churches to give us liberty because our churches are in trouble if they don't. Because God is the avenger of those that take away liberty. It's not because we're begging that we ask for liberty. We have it already. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you'll bless us as we study this afternoon and tomorrow about the principles and the truths of religious liberty. I ask you to do that by your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen.
To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.